mother lost a child, I tried to ease her pain It's only God's will, she said she felt the same It's funny how the sun will up and bow the rain As if the clouds couldn't stand to see me outside again Wrote a rhyme that was kind with some vision to it Bottom line, it might expand your mind if you listen to it Too much shine can dull the soul If you feel how I feel, then I rap some more How can the devil take my brother if he's close to me? When he was everything I wasn't but I hoped to be Get a little honest and I ask myself If the time come, will you save me if I ask for help? Set my mind on the journey to the outermost To document what it had seen and see, see me the notes And ask Kurt Cobain why, cause I need to know He stopped when he had such a long way to go I saw love in the eyes of a perfect stranger She overlooked my caring heart in search of a gangster Will we ever be together? Only time will tell She called my phone and talked to me as the hours swell Good evening, Alan before all else, I want to thank you in advance for your participation in my podcast. This interview provides me and our listeners an opportunity to get insight from a man who has played an influential role in formative years. This chapter will build upon a discussion that we had offline, and I felt that it would make for a great chapter. Hopefully, by the end of this conversation, our listeners will have a clear understanding of the strategic destruction of African-American families, how the lack of marriages has impacted future relationships and children being born, the historical references of how we have arrived at this brokenness in our communities and culminating with how do we reconcile this issue. These topics mentioned require a depth of conversation. So let's dive right in. Our first question for you, and I always do this with all of my guests, just to lay a framework, an introduction, so to speak, for the thesis. As a former introduction to this conversation for our listeners, please provide a brief introduction of who you are and what makes you a subject matter expert for this chapter. Well, I appreciate that. And it's definitely a pleasure to be on here with you, um, especially discussing a topic that's so pertinent to uh, everything that we're, we're going through. So first and foremost, my name is Alan Chang and uh, originally from New Jersey. Moved to Cincinnati in middle school, and uh, that's where I graduated from Princeton High School. Went on to graduate uh, Raymond Bible College in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then from there I've also studied at North Central University here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I studied urban ministry. So uh, I'm a father of eight, yep, eight, all by one woman, my wife. Um, so we have a large Say that family. again for the people in the back, brother. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, ironically, anytime I mention how many kids I, I, I have, uh, it's it's interesting that the question is always, are they all yours or, uh, you know, what have you? Yep, all, all eight kids are um, by me and my wife. Um, so we even got a set of twins mixed in there. So uh, father of eight. So this subject uh, pertaining to fatherhood is very near and dear to my heart. So I'm looking forward to delving into it with you, Brandon. You know, and I appreciate I appreciate you giving that that brief background on who you are. And like you stated, uh, you you eventually graduated from Princeton High School, which is the high school that I also attended. And I, I had a previous conversation with one of my great friends um, who I also met at Princeton High School. So that that's this is an indication that you can have lasting relationships and friendships with people that transcends years. We're talking about 25 plus years that I've known you. And granted, uh, there has been times that we have not talked to each other. And that friend that I'm mentioning is actually, like I stated on another episode, 
And it was because of him that he linked me back up with you. And I, and we were talking about some music that has nothing to do with this conversation, but I, I do want to provide framework for our listeners. Um, I was talking to one of my really great friends about uh, this artist by the name of Wyclef. He was, he was popular in the nineties and early two thousands for our listeners who uh, may not be millennials, but I said to my friend, man, this was, this was the album, man. I wish music felt like this again. And, and he was like, man, who put you on this album? And I said, man, Al, you remember Al, man? Sheesh, man, I would love to talk to that guy again. So much knowledge that I got from him. And once again, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, uh, this particular interview, you were influential to me in my formative years. You provided thought processes that I may not have been familiar with. I mentioned to you offline the other day that the concept of being dumb, deaf, blind, and stupid and when you said that to me, I walked away from that conversation like dumb, deaf, blind, and stupid. How could someone so young put those words together? And it wasn't until I got older and I realized, and I'm not sure if this is where you got it from. I don't want to speak on where the information came from, but I realized that was 5% information, you know? And I was like, oh, sometimes it's that seed that is planted that when you're growing in the tree of life, you're learning more that you can double back on something. And you're like, wow, I'm, I knew that ever since I was a child. Now the connective points are coming together. But um, I, I just want to give you your flowers. When some, when some people talk to me and they're like, man, it just seems like you have a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of understanding. You're so clear in your thoughts and, and you can speak to so many different things. I try to tell people that I am not self-made. The foundation of my life is my belief system. I made some mistakes in life, man, and I'm not going to make it seem like I'm holier than now. But beyond that, that foundation of my faith is having people around me who poured into me, whether that was grandparents, my mother, uh, my pop that I mentioned in, in, in episode two. You know, there's so many people that have poured into me and I'm thankful for those people. And this is an, another opportunity for me to give public flowers to someone who planted information into my mind. So for you, brother, I really appreciate you and I salute you. But my second question for you, um, I, I do want to set the framework for this question. So let's start at the nucleus of this topic. Right. Commonly, we've heard that the United States of America is a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Actually, we began as a slave society. Now I want to stop there. <laughs> Let me stop there. Like I told you offline, I was having a conversation with one of my frat brothers, Patrick, I told you I was going to talk about you in a positive way, brother. I was having a conversation with one of my, one of my frat brothers and he was like, why does our history always start was slavery. And I said, because the mystery of who we are was stolen from us, brother. And he sat back in his seat and I said, you know, think about it. Uh, we don't know completely who we were historically uh, before slavery and except for what you read in the Bible. So once realistically, if you're a person, uh, one, of, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, that book is your history. He just wasn't told that. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the reality. But at, anyway, I, I'm going to get back to the, to the topic at hand. In many cases, pundits have made the action of slavery comparable to the original sin. Mm-hmm. The historical action of enslavement was prophesied in the word of God, left an indelible imprint on our nation's soul. I mentioned this thought process as a foundation for this conversation. But let's not lose sight of the reality that many people played a role in the demise of God's chosen people. Most definitely. Played a role in the demise of us, the brokenness of us, which is what I want to name this episode. What is the missing piece? One of those missing pieces is it was in the it was in the back window the whole time. (laughs) It was in your it was in your bookshelf collecting dust the whole time. That's one of the missing pieces. Our ancestors were prisoners of war sold by other African tribes, which in the Bible, they're called Hamites. Newsflash, African-Americans. <laughs> we're not Hamites. They tell us we are, but we're not Hamites. Now, that's according to the Bible. They make that up. Now, our ancestors were sold to Catholics so-called Jews and Arab settlers. Now, this leads me to two questions for you, Al. How do you think the transatlantic slave trade affected our family units from then, from the time we got on those ships, until now? Yeah, that's a very interesting question because there's so many elements and layers to it. I mean, you're talking, you know, that even that just the length of the history of from then till now, there's so many uh, layers to that. But I will say, um, as it pertains to today, uh, there's definitely, you know, cultural elements that have derived from, from slavery that we still carry on today. Um, both, you know, you know, negative and, and po- you know, some positive, um, as far as, you know, our, our family structure and unit. Um, what I will say is, as one of the things that I see prevalent today is it seems like there's, there was more unity, uh, in oppression than, uh, than we have in freedom. And there's, there's also, you know, that ties into the biblical narrative too, that we read about in Exodus after Joseph's passing. Um, essentially, you know, after Joseph's passing, the scripture states that, you know, they were, they were oppressed and they began to multiply greatly. And so the Pharaoh said, Hey, we got to do something. We got to do something about, about them. We, you know, let's kill all of the male, the male seed, uh, basically to stop them from multiplying because he recognized and realized and out of his own mouth in scripture, um, he stated that, Hey, they, they, they'll grow to be more than us and mightier than us and basically overthrow us. So that fear of, you know, population growth caused him basically to what, you know, the equivalent of what we see today as, you know, modern day abortion, which is prevalent. In, in our community, um, you know, whereas I, I would venture to say, you know, during slavery, we, you know, we definitely had a higher birth rate because it was it was conducive to those who were profiting off of us for us to have a higher birth rate. The more the more children that we had, the more workers that they had. So ironically, fast forward to today, uh, you know, we, we talked offline about the, the birth rate of our society. And um, that's one thing that, you know that has negatively impacted us definitely seems like there's uh, less u- family unity amongst us as a whole under quote unquote freedom. Now that we're free compared to under oppression. 
So I just find that that one element is the, is the one uh, that really comes to the forefront of my mind and how that affects our family structure and our family unity. Well, I appreciate that. I want to add something to that for, for our listeners to think about. I don't think people understand how much control is in so-called freedom. Like right now, for our listeners, I just read a report that the circuit, a district judge, has stated that they're going to put a stop to all of this mandating as far as vaccinations is concerned. And the sad thing here is, speaking of control, I've been noticing for the last couple of weeks how people look lost. Like when I really look into their eyes, they look lost and they're confused about the lack of control that's taking place right now. To the point where I've said to people, doesn't this feel like the book of Revelations? And and people have said, oh, you know, here you go. Being a conspiracy theorist, as Mr. Kevin Samuel said a lot on his on his podcast. And I know uh, for some of our listeners, they don't love they don't like Kevin Samuels. But I'm going to say, it. you know, sometimes people hit you with signs. And, and Mr. Samuels said stated that it's an acronym for shame, insults and guilt and the need to be right. So people have shamed me for reminding them that there's going to come a time where you can't buy, sell, or trade unless you have the mark of the beast. I didn't make that up. I just read it. Now, right. you know, the old, the old saying is, are you going to believe what you're reading or are you going to think your eyes is lying? That takes a whole lot of type of interesting disconnection mentally to not believe what your eyes are showing. So Most definitely. I, I, I would state that there's a form of control that is being placed on not just African-Americans, but Americans at this point. And we're supposed to be in a land of the free. But I also find it this, this to be interesting because all of this freedom being snatched from us is happening after the 400 year commemoration that was written into law by our former president, President Trump. Once again, as I mentioned on our last episode, for, but for anyone who missed it, that's H.R., H's and Harry, R's and Robert, 1242. And that's the African-American Commissions Act uh, commemorating 400 years of slavery. <laughs> so if you don't know who we are, I'm talking to my African-American listeners. If you don't know who we are, Donald Trump does. <laughs> and I know most of my listeners don't like Donald Trump. And I'm not saying that I like him. He ain't my homeboy. I can't vouch for him. But what I can't vouch for, though, is he wrote that H.R. 1242. <laughs> that's verifiable. You can Google that. Now, whether you want to Google it or not, listeners, uh, that doesn't change the reality of what it is. But this leads me into another question for you, Um, Same building block as we build this house of understanding. As a race of people, now this building off of what I just stated, we have been here for 400 plus years. Yet and still, we have not seen a major increase in our population. According to blackdemographics.com, we are at 14.2% of the total population in the United States. What do you think is the missing piece or pieces to the reality that we are not increasing our numbers. Before you answer that, though, brother, 
I want people to think about simple math here. Yeah, go let's in just, on that. Let, let's just sit there and allow our listeners to think about simple math here. Everybody else numbers has increased. Matter of fact, there's reports coming out that at some point in the near future, 10 to 15 years, there's going to be a this country is going to be a majority Hispanic country. Yep. Which, 2040, I believe. 2040, 2044. 2044. <clears throat> now, that's Issachar. That's Issachar, Ephraim, and all that other stuff, you know, for, for our Christians out there. That I know y'all read y'all Bible. Y'all know who Issachar is. Y'all know who Ephraim is. But I find that interesting how all these other nationalities have experienced a growth number-wise according to black demographics, according to the census report. And I want to state this because somebody challenged me earlier. They were like, okay, what's black demographics? What does that have to do with the price of tea in China? So I I wanted to make sure I mentioned to that person and to our listeners that blackdemographics.com is a specified aggregation of information from the census. And I know most people do not want to read a 2,000 plus page report about all this other stuff that really doesn't apply to you. The great thing about this particular website is it gives you the opportunity to read the information that's specific to your culture. But as you go to that website, it has plastered all over the website that they got their facts, their data from the 2020 census. So I would much rather give you something that's specific to us for you to munch on that information. But once again, Alan, I'll ask the question again. What is the missing piece or pieces to the reality that we are not increasing our numbers here in this country? Well, we've got several factors uh, that immediately come to mind. Number one, um, and there's a good piece on, on this uh, for you know additional resources. I think every literally every black person should should see it's a documentary you can actually watch the full length um, documentary online it's myafa 21 that's m a a f a 21 myafa 21 i mean to me that's probably been the best um documentary that, that i've seen as far as you know pertaining to margaret sanger the whole eugenics movement um yeah, I, I've that one is 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 just must see. I mean, th- there's nothing else to say. You just have to watch it. You don't have to uh, search for it too hard or too far. It's it's right there on YouTube. Myafa twenty one M A A F A two one. Type it in the search bar. Myafa twenty one, and just look for the uh, the full length video. Um, that alone shows that there you know definitely was a strategic. Uh, plan to eliminate the birth rate, which is why, and for those, those of our listeners who don't know, she's actually the founder of Planned Parenthood. And she wanted to, uh, basically she believed in eugenics and she wanted to exterminate the black race because she felt that we were feeble, weak-minded, and basically unworthy, um, of existence. So then fast forward, cause this is going to delve into an, an, another point that we talked about offline, but fast forward, Hillary Clinton, praises Margaret Sanger, number one, her work, as well as as viewing her as a mentor, her ideology as being, you know, uh, impl- in, uh, implemental in some of the uh, things that she believes. So fast forward to that between the abortion, uh, of, you know, killing of, of our own our own seed, 
our birth rate is low. And then tying Hillary Clinton back into that, we all, we all know about the uh, 94 crime bill as it pertains to, you know, President Clinton, uh, implementing that and which <laughs> now current president, uh, Joe Biden was, you know, definitely instrumental in helping to write and enforce. Um, now here, here's what I, I want to actually, I want to actually read this from, from the actual book, um, because I want to make sure that I get it right, clear, concise, and, and that it's as accurate as possible. But the book is by, um, actually by, uh, Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. Now, not only is she a highly esteemed lawyer, she's also married to uh, a federal prosecutor. So her husband's also a lawyer and a federal prosecutor. This, this book is, is, is must, must read. I mean, if you haven't heard of it already, I mean, it's, it's critically acclaimed. It's, it's a bestseller. Um, if you haven't heard of it, it's, it's a must get. And that's The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. So, in in this book on page 56, as she's talking about the uh, crime bill and how that pertains to mass incarceration, basically, as Bill Clinton was running for president, the notion at the time in our country was that Republicans were tougher on crime than Democrats. So Bill Clinton wanted to appeal to, you know, that fan base, that audience, uh, wanted to show that he's actually going to be tougher on crime than any Republican you've seen, right? And so here on page 56 of her book, she she referenced how, uh, you know, President Clinton, once he was elected, he implemented the three strikes law. Right. And then uh, the justice, the Justice Policy Institute observed. And this is actual study, you know, documented research by the Justice Policy Institute. They observed that Clinton's administration's tough on crime policies resulted in the largest increase in federal and state prison inmates of any president in American history. I just want want, want to let that sink in for, for, for a minute. The largest increase in federal and state prison inmates of any president in American history. Yet he came on our Arsenio Hall show, you know, playing the saxophone and his running joke throughout his campaign was that uh, pertaining to him smoking weed. Uh, yeah, I smoke weed, but I didn't inhale. And, and black people just lauded him with, with praise and adulation and even invited him to the proverbial barbecue. <laughs> so uh, mass incarceration has locked up, you know, uh, a significant amount of our male population. And we all know, even biblically, that the seed comes from the male. So without without the male seed, I mean, the the population, our population numbers definitely will, will be low, lower than what they should be. Um, ironically, part of that bill that President um, Joe Biden and former President Clinton signed. This is this is this is this is, you know, astounding. It says similarly funding that had been once used for public housing was being redirected towards prison construction. During Clinton's tenure, and this is on page 57 of her book, during Clinton's tenure, Washington slashed funding for public housing by 17 billion, a reduction of 61%, and boosted corrections by 19 billion, an increase of 171%, effectively making the construction of prisons the nation's main housing program for the urban poor. So, you know, between, you know, a historical uh, movement of eugenics, which, you know, promotes even to this day, 
um, the aborting of our of our own children through Planned Parent programs like Parent, Planned Parenthood, which is a racist, you know, was started by a racist founder, Margaret Singer. Um, and then the incarceration of a large and significant portion of our, our male, our males. I mean, no wonder, you know, that the birth rate, birth rates are low. Well, I would say that first, I want to thank you for giving me that information. I, I did read the new Jim Crow. Maybe I think that book came out. Was it 2014, 13, 14, somewhere in there? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I read that, that book in college and it actually bringing up that particular book led me into another question that I was going to ask you, but I'll get to that question in a moment because you gave myself and our listeners so much in answering that last question that there was a point that I did want to go back to. You brought up Margaret Singer. (laughs) You know, what's interesting about that woman beyond the points that you made. So I don't want to labor the points that you made. I want to add to it. Uh, While I was in college, I was looking for an elective to fill out my course load. (laughs) And uh, for a number of reasons, I decided to take a gender study, gender studies course. And in that gender studies course, the main premise of that particular course was to talk about feminism. Mm. Now, naturally, it's only like me and two other guys in there, and I don't want to talk about those other two guys, but uh, I learned a lot (laughs) about feminism. And what I learned after I matriculated is that a lot of women in the African-American community spit off feministic thought processes. And when I asked them where they got it from, I am met with a question once again. Shame, insults, guilt, and the need to be right. What do you mean where I got it from? I just, man, I just want to know, why do you feel the way that you feel? Because I already know where they got the talking point from. I already know about Margaret Singer. The question is, do some of those in, those women know where they got the talking point from? Do they know who Margaret Singer is, do they know by spitting off that disgusting filth is for the demise of their own community? I don't think they realized that. I don't think they understood that or knew that. And that's the, that goes back to where we started, which is being, and I, and I don't want to castigate women because that's the thing about some people is sometimes people learn or are an indoctrinated with things and they don't know the nucleus of those things because we sometimes are afraid to ask questions. And the only wrong question is not to ask a question. That's the wrong question is to say in your mind, I don't, if I ask this question, will I seem dumb to this person? Sometimes you should ask that question because you might want to know where they got that from, whether it's something positive or negative, want to be careful what you let into your eye and your ear gate. But anyway, going back to the question, building off of mass incarceration, how do you think mass incarceration has affected the mindset of marriage in African-American community? Because you talked about the seed. So real quickly, because you made some great points. Let's talk about that minimum mandatory law that you was talking about, right? (laughs) Right. Them softballs they was throwing at 
men in our community, not just African-American community, it also affected a lot of Latinos as well. I don't want to mm-hmm. say that it did not affect a lot of Latinos. But those minimum mandatory sentences, if you didn't have a child before you went to jail, you would have been out of pocket for about easily 15 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that after doing 20 years, you can't come out of the penal system and have a child. I'm not saying that. But you missed the opportunity to potentially have multiple children because you was locked up in the system. And there's other things that could have happened to you. Traumatic issues, naturally PTSD, hepatitis C, hypertension, you know, a list, a gambit of health issues. Are you even going to be in a position to want to have a family when you come out? But anyway, how do you think that this notion of not notion? The fact, the reality of, rather than not staying corrected, how do you think mass incarceration affected marriages in the African American community? Wow, that's that's a great great point. Um, one study from the Human Rights Watch showed that um, although the majority of illegal drug users and dealers nationwide are white, three fourths of all people in prison for drug offenses have been black or Latino. Mm. So. <clears throat> um, with that, with that being stated, I mean, um, you know, recidivism is a real thing, especially with all of the constraints that are placed upon those reentering society. Um, so that's one one aspect that makes it hard for those reentering societies' uh, employment, right? So, ironically, there's so many uh, name brand companies, for example, Victoria's Secret, Microsoft, uh, Boeing. Um, and a whole host of others that actually employ people while they're in prison, right? For pennies on the dollar. However, those same people, uh, upon reentering to society wouldn't be eligible to work for those, for those companies, um, out here in the quote unquote free world. So I think, um, those that have, you know, made it, made a mishap in life or what have you, uh, as far as, you know, trying to, rehabilitate themselves and reenter society, they find, you know, the economic sanctions that are placed on them too overwhelming to even, you know, maintain a relationship. I, you know, I always say uh, to anybody, especially young couples that we counsel, uh, there's no romance without finance. Right. And so the financial implications that come along with uh, incarceration um, prove in most cases too, you know, too overwhelming uh, for a lot of people to uh, pursue a meaningful relationship in, in that way. Um, as well as, you know, you, you know, you take a female who's educated, pursuing a career, what have you, uh, making good money. Um, she may, she may not, you know, want to, want to settle down with someone who's um, struggling to reenter society. So uh, that's a very real thing. That's an, unf- that's an unfortunate thing because now you're double or triple penalized and that's one thing that I never understood about the penal system is, is you, you pay your time to society for the decision that you made. I don't want to call it a mistake, but some people rightfully made the decision to do what they want, what they did. Right. Um, but you paid your debt to society. And then when you get released, you have to put on uh, job applications that you have been convicted of a federal crime um, or you have a felony on, on your on your jacket, right? And now you're double penalized. Now employers do not want to give you an opportunity. You might have made that decision for a number of reasons, but now I cannot economically put myself in a good standing 
So am I going to struggle through this situation or am I going to go back to what I feel comfortable in doing, which is potentially victimizing people, potentially selling more drugs, um, whatever the case may be, because me doing the right thing is not giving me the right results. Then on top of that, because I am uh, being deemed as a criminal, I'm now not able to get a job, which means now, like you said, without finance, there's no romance. So that's putting me in a, in a position where my dating pool is really small, which on the flip side, I'm glad, you know, the great thing about this great resignation that I've talked about on, on another episode is this is putting a, a lot of people, not just people who have served time for making some decisions. This have put people in a position where they're like, you know what? I don't want to be a part of the system. Because even for the people that have done the right thing, a lot of them lost their jobs and realized, once again, a lot of people think there's um, freedom. They have freedom until they realize they don't. There was people that found out, oh, I'm good. I've been here for X amount of time. They're not going to let me go. And they tossed you out. So it is my hope that um, those men who... You know, and I don't want to be eisegetical. Those men and women who um, have served some time, that they have the ability to be with someone and procreate with someone because love has nothing to do with the mistake or decision that you've made that costs you some time. You should still have the ability to love on someone and have somebody love on you. The society makes it hard enough, you know, and it's very unfortunate and I was discussing, like I mentioned with one of my frat brothers, this notion of hypergamy. That's another one of those things that was built upon. Before Margaret Singer, there was this thought process of hypergamy, dating up. So there's a lot of women who feel like, well, if I have all these degrees and I make all this money, although you could you can you can make eighty thousand dollars a year as a woman. But you got seventy thousand dollars in school debt. (laughs) You got a. $200,000 home loan on top of that. You got a Mercedes Benz because you want to look like you're making money. All of these, uh, those are debts. So when it comes to your net worth, which I talked about in, I believe, chapter number five, when you talk about your net worth, might not be worth that much. So sometimes it's all about the perception people have about what you're doing. There are some people that I know that have served some time that own trucking businesses, that have a plumbing company, that have an electrician company, that have learned these things while they were in the system and didn't have any choice but to become an entrepreneur. And these jobs are frowned upon. That's why one of my upcoming episodes is talking about the importance of getting those tangible skills to change your life economically. But You know, I digress from that particular point. I thank you for providing me some information. Um, The next question I have, and I I do want to set uh, set the framework for this question. According to BlackDemographics.com, 42% 42 of Black children live with two parents compared to 70% of all children. So that's 70% of all other nationalities, in essence while 51% live with one parent compared to 25% of all other children. Oftentimes, 
times, rather, it is this is not the common talking point. We are normally met with the common repeated statistic regarding out-of-wedlock births of 70%, which only takes into account whether or not a woman was married at the time she gave birth or not. This does not factor in that many births take place to engaged or couples who are not yet married or who plan to cohabitate indefinitely. Beyond that, it is mentioned that we do not that we do not get married. However, on that same website, it shows that 30% of marriages at marriage eligible African Americans are married. Moreover, it states that 85% of marriages consist of African American men marrying African American women. Now, let's let that <laughs> sink in for a little bit. Because, wait a minute. For another 10 more seconds, let's let it sink in. Because thankfully, um, I'm glad I read this because the common talking point is a black man to leave for a white girl. A black man to marry a a white woman or some other woman, you know, whatever, interject anything, whoever they come up with, right? But the reality is, according to the census, unless people want to lie on the census to fudge the numbers, According to the census, which once again, the empirical evidence that is on blackdemographics.com came directly from the 2020 census. According to the census, 85% of the marriages that are in existence currently, of those people who filled it out now, let's be careful here. I want to make sure I say this. Not everybody fills out the census for whatever reason they want to not fill it out. Religious beliefs, you just don't want to fill it out. You don't want to be accounted for whatever your reason as to why you didn't fill it out. But of those people that did fill it out and they are married, 85% of those marriages are African-American men and African-American women. But I want to build off of that point that I just made and the last monologue I had. Do you think that the education system, including collegiate, has aided in the separation of African-American families and or dating potential? If so, how? Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a very, very good question. So ironically, <clears throat> you know, I live here in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, where interracial dating is prevalent, uh, more so than any place I've, I've ever seen, right? Uh, but like you said- I've heard that's the reality of Minnesota. Oh, <laughs> Ain't that where Chris from? Yep, exactly. Um, even, you know, our recent current event, uh, with George Floyd that made, you know, worldwide news and headlines. Um, even George Floyd was, you know, uh, engaged to, um, a white lady. But so it's, it's very prevalent here. Um, so I, I think that question is, is very interesting. But as a whole, like you said, that represents a, a small when you look at the, the whole. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very, very interesting because, uh, the education part does play a part from what I, from what I see, like experientially with uh, those that we encounter and talk to seems as if the higher education a black female gets the, the short, the smaller her dating pool uh, for potential suitors becomes um, especially now I, I would, I would say um, it more so, more so out of, out of preferences changing 
as a result of their education because what they what they deem uh necessary or suitable for them uh changes as you as you progress in you know elevating higher education as well as as you uh elevate economically you typically women typically want someone uh making more than them uh with at least you know probably same education as them so that potential pool does uh get smaller and that's some i think here's an analogy that was given to me regarding the dating pool the quotation fingers dating pool the dating pool is as deep as is as deep as the side of the pool that you jump into exactly if and and, and I'm just speaking hypothetically I don't I don't want to make a blanket statement I don't know all the dating preferences of every African American woman and that's none of my business you know, a woman can make the decision that she would like to make regarding the person that she would like to spend her time with but I did have an intellectual debate with the woman one day and I said, how much do you think a man needs to make in order for you to be with him? And she said, well, I want him to at least make the same amount of money I make. I was like, okay, you know, I don't really want to count your money, but let's just throw out a hypothetical number. She was like, well, I want him to at least make $80,000. So here goes my Kevin Samuels moment in my mind backed up. Like, by blackdemographics.com, the average African-American woman makes $53,000. That's empirical data. I didn't, you know, I didn't make that up. That's a random number, too. $53,000 some odd dollars is a random number, too. So, I, once again, I don't know if that was the amount of money that she made, but that's the number she stated that she would like a man to make. So, I said, okay. Do you know how much a truck driver an owner-operator of a truck makes? She was like, no. I was like, you know, it can be over six figures. Did you know that? She was like, no. I was like, did you know in, in some places, if you work for um, UPS, you can make $90,000? Did you know that? She was like, no. I was like, did you know that a person that owns a, a plumbing company, which plumbers are in dire need, currently that you can make six figures and that as well. No, I didn't know that. Okay. Did you know that an accountant, which is a base level accounting degree, and I'm not laughing at this amount of money, but this goes into, I'm setting this up as a talking. I was like, do you know the average accountant makes anywhere from 55 to $65,000? And she was like, I've heard that. And I was like, okay, so you have someone who has traditional education, got an accounting degree, they're making $55,000 to $65,000, which is not an amount of money to laugh at, depending on part of the country you're living in. That's definitively middle class. But then you have someone who's a plumber, a truck driver, a person that delivers your mail, um, potential electrician, um, an entrepreneur who is making double that, who is making close to six figures, if not more than six figures. But what I hear commonly, and this is me talking to her and just trying to give her a, f a framework of how to try to change her mind frame. I was like, but what it sounds like to you is you would much rather date the guy who is an accountant working in an accounting firm because that looks good on paper right. than the guy that drives the truck who makes over $100,000, which is above the $80,000 that you said 
you would like your man to make. So I think as, as I close up this particular moment, I think once again, your dating pool is only as deep as the size of, as the side of the pool that you decide to jump into. But beyond that, I do want to ask you one more question about that same framework that I went into. I want to interject some real, real quick along that line. Well, Go ahead, bro. Because you, you, cause you asked a, a great question to begin with. Um, and when you started out with the point of um, the the misnomer that black males tend to marry white females, right? Or marry outside the race. Um, there's a great book by, uh, well, two, I want to reference two books. One is called Brainwashed, Challenging the Myth of Black Inferiority. It's by Tom Burrell. That's an ex- excellent book. Um, he's actually, his background is in marketing and he delves into various aspects of black culture that have been intentionally, uh, marketed to us by mainstream media to, pre- to present, you know, the uh, notion of black inferiority, how, you know, how, how many billions of dollars are spent in advertising, uh, even, even in years past on, uh, marketing the notion of black inferiority. So to your point, uh, you mentioned that, you know, Socially, there's this notion that, uh, black men will tend to marry, you know, white women or what have you. But when you go to the data, as you stated, right, the data shows otherwise. So then where does this notion come from? And I would assert that the notion comes from the same place that all of the other misinformation pertaining to, uh, blacks, especially, you know, black males comes from. This stuff is, you know, deliberately marketed to us. And that's a good point. And that's why that's why we're having a conversation on the thesis. A podcast where we unlock the thoughts of time, as I always say at the end, because this is not a conversation. Yeah, I'll give my anecdotal um, ideas and thought processes and stuff like that. And I leave room for my guests to do the same thing. But the bottom line here is there's enough podcasts doing those things. There's enough conversation, personal conversations where we throw these random thought processes out there that people spit sometimes as if they're facts, but they're baseless. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't just happen in the African-American community. It happens in a lot of communities. We have these ignorant thought processes. And then when you really take the time to research them, you realize that it doubles back to nothing, you know, and then you start questioning life. Like how much, has been implanted in my mind by way of movies, music, um, TV shows, etc., newspapers, articles that are just marketing ploys did you to see control the, uh, our mind. Did you see the study? Uh, looks, I think it was like maybe like a couple years back, um, but it's you know fairly recent, where they showed that they did a study and the whole again the whole notion in society of uh, black males being deadbeat dads or, you know, what have you, or um, absent from their kids' life. They did a study and they showed it showed that uh, black males were more active in their children's life than um, other other ethnicities. And it was a big, big to do because when the, when the study came out, uh, many people, you know, were shocked as if, wow, yeah, you know, this shows that black black dads are, are really there. And it was like, well, where did we ever get the notion that black, you know, black uh, dads aren't active in their kids' lives. 
again, you know, movies, media, things like that, that portray us in a negative light. You do it so long, um, it, it becomes truth in some people's mind until, you know, people such as yourself. And that's why this podcast is so, so powerful and uh, influential. The thesis, because you're using actual, you know, hard data as opposed to, you know, just uh, public opinion. And uh, I think that's that's what you know is definitely going to set this podcast, um, you know, aside from from other podcasts. And, and I appreciate that. And I'm humbled by that statement because I respect your mind. Once again, um, as I told you offline, uh, when people talk to me about uh, their perceived thought processors regarding my intellect, I always give credence to people who pour it into me. So when people hear those nuggets, like I told you the other day. You have been given the opportunity to see the fruit of the seed you planted years ago. And a lot of people don't get to see that. So I'm humbled by um, you stating that. And I appreciate not only you, but I appreciate my listeners for giving me an opportunity. Y'all, to my listeners, you could be doing anything with your life instead of listening to my show. You could be entertained by some things that I'm not entertained by. I don't want to castigate any of those other forms of entertainment, but you're taking time out of your life to listen to me and my guests. So I also want to thank you, Um, but you're absolutely right. That's precisely the reason why I decided to call it the thesis, because I hear all these different talking points on both sides. Let's not get it twisted. Men say some stuff that I have to challenge them about those things too. Like, where'd you get that from, bro? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, where did you get that from? And, and and if you could point me in, in the direction as to where you got it from, then I can do some more research because it really sounds like this is conjecture. Mm-hmm. And I'm too old for conjecture. Too old and, and, and too intellectual. But uh, my intellect, let me let me humble myself by saying my intellect is as small as a grain of sand in the vast landscape of God's omnipotence. Definitely. So that's why I don't lean on my under my own understanding. I lean on the word of God and I lean on the books and references and other, you know, theoretical knowledge or empirical data that I find. It is not about me. These episodes are not about me. This is trying to promote and progress Many communities, not just the African-American community, me saying, do your own research, study and show yourself approved is not just about African-American. We have to do better. We just have to do better. But I want to go back to um, one of the other questions that I wanted to ask you is, and you kind of kind of went into it a little bit about these false narratives that's taking place. I wonder, I wonder how many, how many people will potentially walk away from this episode, this, or rather this chapter, still feeling and believing and holding on to those narratives that they've been given by tell lies vision. (laughs) Um, I want, I want to leave people off of this point by saying he that controls the pen controls the narrative and who's going to control the author that's controlling the pen. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this podcast is about 
controlling the author who controls the pen. We are in an age of Aquarius. That's esoteric knowledge for people who want to venture into that. But be careful. Buck your seatbelts for that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, we're in the age of Aquarius. So because we're in the age of Aquarius, a lot of things are providing this sense of equilibrium. Just imagine. Because they keep kicking the can around about Queen Elizabeth, maybe not going to make it. You know, that's very interesting to me that, that her husband kicked the can. Now she's not looking too good. Just imagine what could be released from those those vaults under the Vatican. Maybe they know something they don't want us to know. Interesting. Hopefully that happens in my lifetime. But I want to move on to, you know, our two last questions as we get into a close here. Um, we cannot change our history and what has led to the brokenness and or the separation in our homes. How do we increase the marriage rate in the African-American community? And do you think increases in the, in the marriage rate will lead to an increase in births within our culture and our community? Wow. I think excellent. Um, so on that, I would say there's actually a book that I recently uh, got a hold of. Haven't had a chance to delve all the way into it. Um, because I got a few other books that are that are before it, you know, you know how that goes. I keep several books going simultaneously, and uh, this one this one is in my next set of set of books that I'll be reading. But it's uh, it's a book called "Is Marriage for White People: How the African American Marriage Decline Affects Everyone." And this book is written by author is uh, Ralph Richard Banks. I mean, e- even you know, you know, when you first grab a book, that the title itself was was very very catchy and intriguing. Um, so even when I read the back of the books and scanned through it and, uh, was just going, I mean, yeah, it, it already captured me. So that's why I said it's in my next set of books. I got, uh, two, two other books that I'm currently reading that are ahead of this. As soon as I finish that, this is one that'll be in my next set of reads. But, uh, I would definitely recommend this, this book to, to your readers as well. As far as the, from what I've seen so far, the information contained in it, um, challenges, uh, and addresses the very question that you're asking. I would say, um, you know, I think again, you know, historically we've had marriages, uh, as you and I talked offline, we've had marriages during slavery, right? We've had marriages during, uh, segregation, during Jim Crow. And it wasn't until, uh, the welfare reform that you begin to see the decline and breakup of, of the nuclear black family unit because essentially, you know, Uncle Sam became, you know, replaced the father figure. In, in the household. So, uh, and that also kind of, you know, delves into, um, like you said, you know, some of the socioeconomic aspects of, you know, of tension that we see amongst, you know, black males and black women as it pertains to the subject of marriage. But I definitely think that if, uh, if we promote marriage in its, in its right way, as well as if people had the opportunity to see more successful marriages and, uh, make it something more desirable, then I think, yeah, you know, more people would see, see the fruit of it. Uh, a, a lot of times culturally, um, which is interesting is we view marriage as, um, something that been for, for ourselves. For example, someone to love me, someone that I love, someone that I think is attractive. It's, it's me centered. Whereas, you know, in some cultures they have, uh, arranged marriages <laughs> where you have no say so, but yet those marriages, you know, still, still work. And the reason I bring bring up the arranged marriages versus you know how we view marriage is uh, we have to marry we have to look at what is our purpose for marriage, right? 
um, if our purpose is in building and, um, and it's, if our purpose is in, uh, putting a godly seed in this earth, right? For generations to come, then that supersedes, you know, our own selfish desires of why, you know, we want to be married and then why our marriages, you know, tend to, tend to fail or break up, right? Um, the biggest thing I would say though, uh, as it pertains to marriage is, um, it seems that we have a culture that desires pleasure more than responsibility. So you Hold can't on, say re- that again for the people in the back that might have missed that. I'm sorry. <clears throat> yeah. Well, you know, every, every, every blessing, I'll say this, every blessing comes with responsibility attached to it. Right. So God blesses you with, with, with a, with a car, right? You're still responsible for maintenance, putting gas in it, washing it and cleaning it. There's a responsibility. God bless you with a house. You still have to, you know, the upkeep, right? The, the landscaping, what have you. you. There's still responsibility attached to whatever blessing, you know, uh, God gives you. So even when it comes to our sexuality, right? We want the fruit. <laughs> we want the fruit of pleasure that comes with, with sex, right? But not the responsibility that comes with it. So yeah, you, there's, there's many people that, yeah, will definitely, um, desire to have sex, but not the responsibility of what come, what comes with it, having it within, um, a marriage relationship or raising the kids that come as a result of that. So that kind of delves back into even, you know, like we talked about the Margaret Sanger piece where, yeah, we want sex. We want the pleasure, but we don't want the responsibility of having to raise children as a result of that, that pleasure. So, you know, we're willing to even kill off our own and our birth rates reflect, reflect, reflect such. So I, I think, I think in that aspect, I would say my, my answer would be we, we just have to mature, become mature in our sexuality as well as in our God oriented principles. And I totally agree with you. I think this whole thought process of, my body, my right <laughs> has put people in a position where it's another way of saying you can't judge me. So I can do whatever I want to do with my body. And what does you can't judge me typically equate to? Don't get, don't hold me accountable. Don't hold me accountable. <laughs> you can't correct me. Mm-hmm. And a, a former pastor of mine used to say all the time to me that the hardest thing about preaching to preaching to congregants is they mistake correction for judgment. Mm. And he said, the judgment, if you think me correcting you is judgment, then you really need to fear God because God don't play the games you play. Mm -hmm. There is no gray area with God. Matter of fact, it says that God does not converse with liars. That you better have Jesus there to speak on your behalf, to be an intercessor. So all this stuff people say in music, all these things people say as conjecture, like, well, I'll just have a conversation with God when I see him. That ain't how it work. Because he don't converse with liars. And let me, tell, let me tell our listeners something about liars. Sometimes we think if a, if a person is a habitual liar, that makes them a liar. That's not how God looks at it. You tell a lie in your whole life. One, you're a liar to God. There ain't no gray area with God. So you tell him one lie in your whole life. You are a liar to God. So you better hope that Jesus is there to speak on your behalf. Because if not, 
God ain't got nothing to say to you. That's that's a harsh reality. It's an interesting Don't. point right there. <laughs> you say when it comes to things like that, like you say, the person think uh, if, if I'm a habitual liar, that make that makes a person a liar. But yeah. how many how many people does one have to kill before they're considered a murderer? <laughs> no, I just killed. I just killed. You know, two, one, one person. I, I, I ain't no murderer. No, I just, nah, you know, two, two or three. Just, <laughs> yeah, it, it was just a moment. You know right, right, right. I'm going. I was going through some things, but look, you know, I don't. I'm not saying that to judge anyone because once again, there's a big difference between correction and judgment. I don't want to make a woman feel like because I don't know every woman's situation. But I'm glad that you brought up abortions. Mm-hmm. And if it hasn't been abortions, then it's been, you know, contraceptive, things of that nature. And now we're in a position where we are below the replacement rate. And by the grace of God, of families like you who have eight children, you're helping spread out that number for our culture. Because it takes 2.7 children to not have a dying off culture. Now, I said that to my line brother earlier today. Uh, and he laughed and he said, what is the point seven? I don't know. Let's just shoot for three. <laughs> Let's just shoot for three children and we'll be okay. But it's not just abortions and contraceptive. It's having children in these very harsh communities and broken people being around broken people and then you step outside and because you stepped on this person's shoes or you're from the wrong side of town now you got to go without even it being a thought process and guess what that person killing this other person now people from that side of town is going to come over and possibly kill two or three people and it's people that look like you what happened with getting the ass whooped I, I just, I didn't know that what was said in, in Friday was going to be such a real thing now. You know, I threw hands as a kid. You, I won some and I lost some. But I'm still here today. And I, I think a lot of these youngsters, man, these teenagers, man, they the reason why they're so quick to shoot people is because they don't know how to fight. Most definitely. And, unfortunately, a lot of them were brought up in homes that don't have a father. So they're getting all that estrogen energy and it has to, you have to go to the extreme to resolve something. Oh, I'm going to kill this man because I listen to this idiotic music that's out here, man. And I don't want to name those artists because I don't want to get my platform shut down because I don't name some artists that somebody like. But all this deaf devil music these youngsters are listening to. And I, I had my share of music I probably shouldn't listen to as a kid, but it was just music to me and the people I hung out with. I knew how to separate the two. I don't think these youngsters know how to separate the two. Like my mother said to me last week, she was like, man, Brandon, I I think this weed is different. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, maybe it is, you know, maybe it ain't just the weed, you know? So I want to, I want to die. I digress from that point to go to this point because I always want to try to end my episodes on a positive note. So how do we mend the broken pieces 
in order for us to progressively move forward as a culture. What do you think? Yeah, I think, um, I think, you know, number one, it starts with, um, you know, having an honest assessment, like you said, uh, sober thinking. Um, because like you said, a lot of, a lot of times, some of the things that people believe, say, spout and, and spew out, uh, aren't from a sober mind, not necessarily in intoxication as far as drugs, but intoxicated with lies and fabrication from, uh, various sources. Uh, so we got to think soberly and, cl- and clearly. So for example, um, <clears throat> Germany, there's a saying in Germany by the Muslims there. They said, Germany is ours. The Germans just don't know it yet. And what they, what they mean by that is according to their birth rate, uh, as if things keep going as, as is within about 20 years, they're saying that it'll be majority Muslim population. So, uh, even, even living here in the Twin Cities, we have a large Somali population and, uh, they believe in having, you know, a bunch of kids as well. So, uh, in, you know, in suburban America, it's like two kids, you know, two and you're through. You got a boy, you got a girl. Oh, good. I'm, I'm done. Right. Whereas, um, other cultures, they believe in, you know, having, uh, large families. So even, even in that, just, you know, thinking through the numbers logically and clearly, I think if we think soberly and, uh, love ourselves, you know, scripture says, you know, love your neighbor as, as, as yourself, right? Well, if you don't love yourself, your love for your neighbor isn't going to be so great as well. So I think, uh, we have to, you know, we, we got a lot of healing to do. We have, um, take, take those things, you know, historical pieces into consideration in our healing journey, but self love. And I would say, you know, sober thinking. There's a point that I want you to talk, uh, that I want you to discuss quickly, if you can, please. Okay. And I was going to go into it, but I think you can explain it a whole lot better. Since I have the horse's mouth on the, on the line, as they say, <laughs> instead of me trying to paraphrase, I want to get it directly from you for our listeners. You had stated something along the lines of the lie that we bought into, I believe, regarding the American dream. Did we talk right. about that? Right. And I think, and I want to set that up, if you could bring up that point, but I, I set this statement up that you're going to say, to say that the way I think we mend the broken pieces is to realize that we bought into a falsity of what the American dream is. Mm-hmm. So if we realize that ultimately, and I've been saying this a lot out loud, that ultimately we need each other. We need to stop saying that we don't. There you go. Men need to start saying, I need my wife. I'm not married now, but I need my wife. Women need to start saying, I need my my husband more than I need this job. Because like I said 15 minutes ago, you like to go into that job that you think love you and is paying you. And they can let you go. And there go the bins you leasing and the, the mortgage you paying by yourself. And all the other stuff you're doing by yourself because you don't want to say you need a husband. They're, you know, same thing. Truth is parallel. Doing all this stuff by yourself as a man when you really need your wife. It's always better to do things in unison and separate and apart. But what would you tell me offline about the so-called American dream? Yeah. So the so-called American dream. Before I delve into that real quick, isn't it interesting? Just I was just sitting thinking as you, you were talking. Isn't it interesting that 
we've quote unquote advanced in so many ways, right? Uh, we would say we, we'd advance, you know, technology has advanced, um, social relations have advanced. I mean, we're no longer under Jim Crow. Uh, educationally, you know, we're, we're pursuing higher, higher degrees, right? But isn't it interesting that even though we're progressing in higher education, uh, the fundamentals of life, something simple as basic, um, basic marriage unions, we're, we're, we're failing at. I just find that kind of, kind of interesting that we're, we're more educated, but the more, it's almost in some ways, we're more educated. The more educated we become, the dumber we become. But, um, as far as the American dream, uh, basically the, the whole notion behind the American dream, even the phrase, the American dream, uh, many people, we say it in, in everyday speech, but, uh, have no idea where it actually came from. The phrase actually came, you know, from back in the day, the government was fearful that, uh, a lot of the youth, uh, were, you know, embracing, uh, communist ideologies. So one way for them to counter that was to promote home ownership because they felt that if they owned a home, they would have a vested interest in the, in the country and therefore they wouldn't, uh, be so quick to adopt communist, communist ideology as well as it would keep them kind of stationary, um, because they got a mortgage payment to pay and something that they own, it would keep them stationary and they would be less likely to be, you know, transient. So, uh, there was a whole actual marketing campaign by the government promoting what's called the American dream. That's really where that term actually came from. It was a way to combat the ideology of communism. And I thank you for that. And my, my iPhone must've been listening to you because after we had that conversation, <clears throat> There was this CNBC report that came up in my YouTube. That's another thing. For my listeners, please start. We need to start reading the terms and conditions of these apps that we have on the phone. Because you and I, Al, was having this conversation about the so-called American dream. And then the next day, there was a video that was suggested to me from CNBC about how the American dream transitioned from it being about a home and a middle-class income to you need to have a degree to get that middle-class income. Cause it wow. used to be, you could work in a factory. Your wife could stay home. The man could go work in a factory, do some overtime and he can have a home, maybe two cars, if not two, at least one, because he probably worked at a plant Ford plant, Chevy plant, Etc. Some plant, he could have a car, multiple children, a home. His wife didn't have to go to work. Now it's everybody just go to college. And then you can potentially get that middle class income. Potentially. It used to be a time where a bachelor's degree. Oh, man, if you had a bachelor's degree, you were amazing. You can write your ticket anywhere into a building. Now it's pretty much getting to the point where it's a doctorate degree. And what I want people to recognize, what we're going to see in the next 20 years, 15 to 20 years, they're already complaining about it now. These collegiate systems are going to crash because men are stepping off because of this Me Too movement. Now you can't say certain things on campus. You can't be a man anymore. 10, 20 years from now, because you approached or said something to a woman, you liable to be uh, the head deacon at your church 10 years from now because of something you said to a young lady at school. Now you some predator. 
So it's, it has made, and I didn't think about this. People, please Google that. Please Google the fact that these institutions, which is now connected to the so-called American dream, these institutions are concerned about the fact that men are no longer going to be going to, they're no longer, they're making a choice to not come back to school. But that doesn't mean that they're not coming, they're not going to school. They probably have made the decision that the best thing for me to do is to go to college or to junior colleges and get those tangible skills. They probably, they've given up on liberal arts. So then it's going to be a conversation about how are these schools going to maintain? So you couple that with people not having children. See, to some people that's listening to this conversation, they're like, ah, whatever, I'm still going to do what I want to do. You know, I'm still only going to have one or two kids. You have to think 20 years from now. We have to think strategically about what is this going to look like 10 to 20 years from now, two generations from now. So in closing, Al, I always give my guests an opportunity to give a thesis statement regarding the chapter that they participated in. If you had to give a thesis statement regarding this chapter, what would that thesis statement be? I would say uh thesis statement would be uh, for black families to thrive and survive. We definitely would have to get back to a God oriented uh, focus as it pertains to family and child rearing. That was concise and to the point. I think we gave our listeners a great bit of information. And I know you probably threw out at least eight to 10 books. Most of them I have not heard of. And I'm a avid reader. Not as much as I used to be because I'm in school, but uh, reading became a sport for me because, and I'm going to say this real quickly, one of the things my mother said to me a lot as a child is, you can control how people look at you. And I'm paraphrasing my mother. So mom, when you hear this, please know it's a paraphrase. That you can control the way people look at you by the knowledge that you have. I like that. When I found out that I was reading above an eighth grade, eighth grade level because my mother forced me at least three times to write the whole dictionary, I saw how my teachers looked at me differently. So it didn't matter that I had an Afro in high school or braids. My intellect was there. though. I could have deeper conversations with my teachers that sometimes surprised them because I actually could speak above and read above a grade level. One, le- one, one last thing about that eight grade level thing mm-hmm. that I don't think a lot of people know about. The most famous newspaper in the United States is either going to be named, either going to be mentioned as the New York Times or the Washington Herald. Both of those newspapers are written on an eighth grade level. And they write it on an eighth grade level because they know that the average reader can only read on an eighth grade level. As I close, this podcast is not for those eighth grade level readers or attention span people. This is a podcast for you to go way beyond the narrative. We talked about the narrative a couple times in this particular chapter. I look to change the narrative that African-Americans are beneath everyone else intellectually. A part of that is our fault. 
So this is how we can mend the pieces. We mend the pieces by loving on each other. We mend the pieces by educating ourselves. We mend the pieces by loving on ourselves. Forgive yourself. Get the therapy you need. Forgive your parents. There's a whole reason why I set this season up the way that I did. Sometimes you need to tell your, call your mom and tell her you're sorry. Call your dad and tell him you're sorry. If you have the ability to apologize to your parents, call them and tell them you're sorry. Mend those pieces first. So if you can fix those relationships, then when you look at your child, it's easier to have that working relationship with your child. It's easier to have that working relationship with your spouse. It's easier to have that working relationship with your significant other. As you transcend from dating to relationship to courtship to engagement to marriage and then staying in that marriage, we have to mend these pieces. Al, I want to thank you for your time. I appreciate the knowledge that you've given not only myself, but our listeners. It is my hope, and we talked about this offline, it is my hope that we can revisit this conversation again. Based upon the amount of books that you mentioned in this episode, we can just have a conversation about theoretical and empirical data and knowledge books <laughs> that we can build off of for our listeners. I think between our two libraries, we could, we could fill up somebody's library just on our two libraries alone. Most definitely. So I, I look forward to having you on the show again. And, and as I close, I want to thank our listeners. Once again, you could be doing anything with your time, but you're spending it with us. For anyone that's new listening to this, I want to welcome you to the thesis, a podcast where we unlock the thoughts of time. Be encouraged. I put my problems in a box beside my tightest rhymes On the lock and key, buried deep off in my mind And when it gets too full and I can't close the lid I spaz on my family and my closest friends Trade my materials for a peace of mind I'm so close to heaven, hell, I just need some time Who cares about life and the highs and lows Maybe I should write another song about pimps and hoes Cars and clothes, idol guards, golden calves Louis scars. I do this for the love and it's free of charge. I don't need jail to be behind bars. This is purely art. In my grandma's household, this was surely taught. Don't be naive, yeah, these times is hard. In the midst of all the glamour, I hope you find God. I never wish to be the burden bearer. But souls need saving and it's not never.